Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and welcome to the Mindful Muslim podcast by Inspiritual Minds where we discuss Islam, psychology, spirituality and mental health. My name is Minha and today I was joined by Dr. Shahzad Amin who is the CEO of MEND and is a consultant psychiatrist working in NHS. We had a really great conversation. It was so beneficial. We dis- deconstructed jinn possession and, and mental health in the Muslim community. We spoke about the lifestyle of Muslims nowadays and how that impacts our mental health. We spoke about Islamophobia online, um, his experiences of growing up in the 70s in the UK and, and so much more. It was such a reassuring conversation as well with the with a Muslim medical professional in the NHS and it was just so beneficial and super super interesting so please do keep listening and make sure you leave us a review and let us know what you think your feedback is really important for us to keep growing and to keep progressing we are here to cater for you so please do let us know what you want to hear and if you're interested in being a guest or would like to suggest a guest for a future podcast please email us at podcast at inspirationminds.org.uk If you would like more information on Inspiration Minds, who we are and what we do, please visit www.inspirationminds.org.uk or you can find us on all socials at Inspiration Minds. Jazakallah khair for listening and may Allah reward you in abundance for supporting us. Assalamu alaikum Dr. Shahzad, thank you for joining us today. Um, so we at Inspiration Minds obviously are big fans of yourself and, and we know a lot about what you do, but for our um, audience members, if you could just tell us a bit about um, your, your background and what you're currently up to. So wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah, it's delighted um, to, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you to Inspiration Minds for inviting me. Um, I say my name is Dr. Shahzad Amin, uh, I am a psychiatrist by training. Uh, currently, I'm the Deputy Chair and Head of Creative Media at MEND, which stands for Muslim Engagement and Development. And we are basically a non-governmental organisation and we aim to tackle Islamophobia, uh, primarily in the UK, by getting Muslims actively involved in media and politics. That's basically my current role, really. Amazing. Um, so um, let, let's talk a little bit about MEND. Um, obviously, what's, what's been happening over the past few years since 9-11 I mean Islamophobia has been up on the rise um and you know your background in in mental health can you tell us a little bit about the you know is there a connection between Islamophobia and mental health if so you know what are those connections have you seen any trends recently um yeah yeah I mean maybe useful perhaps um if I go back to to how I got involved in men in the first place perhaps we can come back to the issue of the overlap a little bit later, if we may. Um, so uh, I, you mentioned over the past few years, you're absolutely right, Mina, basically the situation has got much worse over the past few years, but Islamophobia didn't start three, four years ago. It started a long, long time ago, and it's changed in various forms. And I guess I guess for the current generation of people and people in my generation as well, I think obviously since 9-11, the, the situation globally has changed vis-a-vis the attitude towards Muslims worldwide, really, yeah? Um, so, certainly since then, of course, in 7-7 and various other things that have happened, I think Islamophobia has become much more a prominent 
uh, in the UK political scene, really. I mean, I remember growing up um, in the 70s, I'm that old, basically, yeah? And in the 1970s, some people will, of my age will remember, we had a party called the National Front. And the National Front, basically, were, were a, a far-right party. But what's interesting about them is they didn't distinguish between different types of brown or black people. Uh, they hated all people equally. They basically, you know, were against um, Hindus, Sikhs, Muslims, black Afro-Caribbean people, Jewish people, Irish people, all those groups put together, really. Uh, and that's only one generation ago. And now we see political parties in this country like the EDL uh, and other parties who are not just here across Europe as well, who are specifically against Islam and Muslims. Yeah, And that's been the big change in recent years that... Islam has become a focus of people's kind of anger uh, for all sorts of reasons, as it were. So Islamophobia, therefore, has really crystallized into a much bigger entity than we ever had you know, 30, 40 years ago. So so that's something really worth, worth bearing in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when, 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 you, when you just said you were growing up in the 70s, I mean, when somebody experienced Islamophobia or any type of racism, mental health or how it impacted your well-being probably wasn't something that came to mind right not really i mean growing up obviously there was racism uh, as such yeah so you know the usual p word n words that kind of thing you got a bit of that school all of those kind of things but growing up you know we weren't really aware of islamophobia as such you know we weren't basically singled out uh, because in a sense we were part of an ethnic group which didn't distinguish between muslims and sikhs and i remember growing up I happened to have a lot of Sikh friends and just playing in the park and things. And when we were playing together, we weren't really aware of our different identity as such, you know, religious perspective. Obviously, when, you know, in cricket, when India played Pakistan, then it was very different, of course. We were on different sides. Yeah? It was very different then because then all our nationalistic things came in. But in terms of our religious identity, not really. Uh, and ironically, of course, we spoke the same language. So we had a shared bond there and ate the same food, that kind of thing. So interesting. You think about parallels here between the here and the partition. Growing up, um, living with, with the Sikhs and things, uh, I did, really didn't feel that at all in my childhood. Absolutely. And when when we talk about, you know, Islamophobia, um, I, I mean, I've, you know, everyone's experienced some form of Islamophobia, whether you, you know, look Muslim, visibly Muslim, or, or you don't. Um, and, you know, when I first had experienced, uh, you know, an Islamophobic attack, you know, everybody was like, you know, mashallah, you're so strong for going through that. You're still wearing the niqab, you're still wearing the hijab. But not once did anybody sort of say like, you, you've, been, you've been attacked for something you believe in. Are you okay? You know, how are you mentally doing? How are you coping? And I had experienced, you know, things like agoraphobia and PTSD and, you know, super, I'm still super vigilant, you know, in public. And, you know, in those times, I didn't really know what it was. I didn't really know what to call it. And everybody was like, oh, you're so brave, you know, and I felt like, Oh no! Should I should I be feeling this way? Um, you know, can you can you comment on a little bit about that? Like, do we talk about mental health enough when it comes to Islamophobia? I think yeah, we'll, we'll come to Islamophobia in a, in a moment. But I think if we step back first of all to understand what you're saying and why people didn't mention it, or we have to look at really the status first of all of mental health in our society in general, and then talk about it <coughs> as a as a concept within our own communities, and I mean Muslim communities. Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Indian communities, as it were. So first of all, in wider society, um, one of the reasons I got into mental health in the first place is it's a very poorly understood and highly stigmatised still area of health, yeah? 
So whereas you can easily and openly talk about, you know, having a heart attack or breaking your leg or something like that, or having cancer, and if you have those kind of illnesses and conditions, you are very likely to elicit a lot of sympathy, yeah? A lot of people ask you how you are, do you want help, do you want this, do you want that kind of thing, and it's something you can talk about openly, you know, sitting on a train or on public transport. However, if you have a mental health problem, it's very different, yeah? So having depression, PTSD, agoraphobia, all these kinds of conditions, they are not things we can easily talk about. And part of the problem there is society stigmatizes them to a very high level sometimes, yeah? So the, the initial reaction isn't one of sympathy, it's a mixture of different emotions, you know, maybe suspicion, maybe, you know, uh, even antagonism, maybe something wrong with you or something wrong with your personality or your iman or whatever kind of thing. Yeah. So automatically you're on the defensive. And that's why people don't like talking about these things, because they generally speaking, they don't get the same reaction as we do for physical health. In fact, why should it be any different? I mean, at the end of the day, the brain is an organ. So just like your heart can have, you know, can have problems with your heart, your brain can as well. So when the brain malfunctions, in a way, you get depression, anxiety and all those things. You know, when the heart malfunctions, you get having a heart attack or angina or things like that. Um, so, you know, objectively, it shouldn't make a difference, but society doesn't react in the same way. Now, that is a problem in society in general. And I have to say, you know, there's been lots of moves in public education over the years. It's got better over the years. Yeah, not that much better in some areas, but certainly better. However, in our own community, it's a much bigger problem. Yeah. And I've given public talks about this as well. Mental health in Muslim communities is a separate topic altogether, because not only do we have the overall stigma, there are specific stigmas attached to uh, mental health in our own communities uh, in two main areas. One is basically linked to our ethnicity. Yeah. And how we perceive it within our community. So, for example, having mental health problems can be a significant barrier to a person finding a marriage partner, a rishta, for example, yeah? So, you know, if you if you disclose that information, it can be a major issue, especially for women, because people will see that very negatively. They won't, you know, if you disclose a history of heart problems or asthma, it's not a big deal, yeah? Because people feel sorry for you, yeah? If you say, well, I've had a history of depression, you think, well, hold on, something wrong with you, can it? Is it genetic? Can you pass it on to your kids? All that kind of thing comes into it, really. So, so that's one aspect of it. We have a particular inbuilt suspicion towards mental health, yeah? And then from an Islamic point of view, uh, we come into the area of, well, actually, is it because you, you've got, you know, poor iman or there's some kind of weakness there or some kind of deficiency, sorry, deficiency Islamically, some deficiency Islamically, as it were, in you. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, people can bring into all of that, you know, jinn possession, all of that. Are you possessed? All this kind of thing comes into it, even though, you know, it's extremely rare for jinn possession to uh, cause mental illness. It's a virtually ubiquitous uh, view in our community. It's incredible number of people who think basically all of mental illness is caused by gin possession. It's incredible, yeah? And that's something else I've talked about in different forums as well. Um, so we have particular problems really in our own communities in understanding and being sympathetic to the nature of, of mental illness in general, yeah? And, and that's a big problem. And that therefore means that if you do have it, people feel inhibited to talk about it, even to their own family and friends, yeah? And of course, what happens then, I mean, you know, just generally, common sense tells you that if you have a health problem and you don't treat it, it can get worse, regardless whether it's asthma, heart problems, whatever. So what tends to happen, people tend to cope with mental health problems by not talking about them, 
by keeping them quiet, modifying them, sweeping them under the carpet, you try and hide it from people, you carry on. Of course, that only works to an extent. If you carry on having a serious problem, it'll simply get worse and worse and worse until one day, you know, it'll come out in some way. It'll come out in some way. So that's a big issue. Coming back to your question, which was about your personal experience. Sorry to hear about your personal experience of Islamophobia. But what you've just described a few minutes ago is pretty typical. Uh, and, you know, part of what we do in MEND, we have something called the Islamophobia Response Unit. Yeah, which is a separate part of MEND. And what we have there is basically it's run by caseworkers and legal supervisors. And we take on board cases of discrimination and hate crime. So if you've been victim of hate crime, uh, you can contact us if you need help in dealing with that, whether it's help dealing with the police, um, you know, basically putting together a statement, um, giving evidence in court, that things like that. Or if you've been discriminated at work, for example, you've not been, you know, you've been looked over for a promotion, you've basically been verbally abused or you've not had a pay increase, whatever it is, we can certainly help you get justice as well. So we have that unit and certainly the... Um, the feedback that we're getting, certainly from the people who are victims of hate crime, which interestingly are mainly women, um, have to say. So Islamophobia is quite gendered in that sense. Yeah, it's mainly women because obviously women tend to be more visibly Muslim um, in terms of wearing the niqab and hijab and things like that. Um, though what we get is feedback is, is obviously that person's life, even though on paper you can think it's a relatively minor thing. Yeah, someone gets abused in the street or gets called a name. And on paper, it looks like, you know, a bit of abuse, um, you know, nothing much at all. But for that person, at a personal level, it has a deep effect mentally. Yeah. Uh, and we don't see that very easily. Yeah. Because that's not obvious. So that person then actually might start becoming quite anxious when they go out, you know, into that street or in that area. And that might get worse. They might feel anxious going out generally. And they stop going out. And if they've got family, for example, children, they stop going out with the children. So it affects the children. Uh, if that person's a mother, you know, it may affect how she interacts with the children. The children see the mother anxious, not going out. They start becoming anxious as well. Obviously, you know, news like that is spread, isn't it? We have all, we're all on WhatsApp groups now. We're all connected very, very highly through social media. And people in your community will know so-and-so got attacked. Where was that? When did it happen? Well, you know, oh, you better be careful. Don't go there. Don't do this. Don't do that. So suddenly the whole community starts becoming affected. So not only actually is your immediate family and friends affected, the whole community you're in now start thinking in a different way and perhaps not going down that street or avoiding certain times and the rest of it. So all these are knock-on effects. So we need to think about Islamophobia not as simply at an individual level. It has profound effects at a family and a community level as well. And that's an area which is relatively new, to be fair, and one we actually do need to research very much. Because obviously what we have what's happening there is the mental health of the whole community is being affected at some level, yeah? And at some point, those things are going to then manifest themselves in their own families, multiplied many, many times. So one single event, uh, which can seem pretty innocuous uh, on paper, can have, you know, uh, serious repercussions throughout the whole community. And of course, if it's more serious than that, it has more serious repercussions. I'm, I'm, I'm giving a, a low-level example there. If you have somebody who's really seriously assaulted, you know, I mean, we've had cases of, uh, of attempted murder and, and, you know, serious assault. Obviously, in those cases, the, the effect is going to be much more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, <clears throat> it's one of those things where, you know, I'll give a really 
poor example when COVID first started and you know you saw the number of people who who would you know unfortunately lost their lives every day it was shocking and then you know a few months down the line it was like oh only six thousand today and oh only eight thousand that's not that's not that bad it's not as bad as it was last week and I think you know similar you know it's probably the same response to to Islamophobic attacks like on paper it's 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 one or two numbers like you said or and, and, you know we know Islamophobia goes massively unreported as well and my, men do do a great job at trying to trying to come up with solutions for that um so i think the actual islamophobia that's happening in our community isn't what's actually recorded and secondly there's there's a much wider impact and much wider consequences than just on on that individual and i, I really love what you said about the mental health of, of the of the community and i think that's the concept that I mean, I've never, I've never thought about it, to be honest. I mean, <clears throat> I'd really like to hear your thoughts more on, on the mental health of the community and just, just generally, how, how do we, hmm, how, how do we encapsulate that, that idea, that, that concept? When you say encapsulate, what do you mean? I mean, encapsulate in what so, way? So, you, you, the, the time of the Prophet Sallallahu for example, you know, advisorship between his companions, they were all very close, the close-knit. Um, they went to each other for, for help and um, met their mental health, quote-unquote, was, was in a good place. You know, their, their well-being was, was in a good place. And the way they viewed their, their soul and their mind was all in, all in one. You know, there was polymaths at that time that didn't differentiate between medicine for the soul and medicine for the mind and medicine for the physical health, whereas... We have that disconnect in, in our communities right now, and we are more disconnected than ever whilst being virtually connected. So, I mean, do yeah. you think the mental health of our community is being impacted by Islamophobia, and how, how do we move forward from this? Yeah, there's no question it's been impacted. I mean, you, you can't really uh, open a WhatsApp group, can you? Um, or watch the news or read the news, you know, without actually seeing something i mean obviously even if it's not in the uk i mean globally you know we've got the uyghurs rohingya we've got palestine kashmir everywhere you go the muslim world is in some kind of turmoil and fitna as going on so even if you can get away from it in this country now of course some of that obviously you know we are trying to deal with as well because obviously we're all connected globally and men have done some work you know highlighting issues for uh, muslims in in in, in india and the, the, the uyghur community in china etc so so yes yeah, so, so you, you can't and of course most recently palestine and you can't really um uh, i think from a personal perspective you know say you're a muslim and not be affected by that because at the end of the day we are one ummah and we all feel you know the prophet ﷺ in the hadith you know if one part of the body is in pain the whole body feels it really so i i don't think any of us can say that we're not affected by it and of course but how we deal with it is obviously very different from country to country and community to community look the first thing about mental health as I said before, the key to addressing it as a community, uh, whether at an individual, family, community level, is education. And we, we are not well educated about the nature of mental health um, and, uh, and actually what the nature of it actually is, really. Uh, and as I said, it comes down to some basic education and basically challenging some of the, you know, the misconceptions. So the one I mentioned before, I'll mention it again. It's a very important one. And I might expand on that, if I may. So... In our community, the, the issue of mental health being closely linked to jinn possession is a very, very widely held belief. Yeah. Now, of course, as Muslims, we do believe jinn exist. Of course they do. Um, and they can interact with the human world. Uh, but that's extremely rare. 
And certainly in my career, I've never even seen a clear-cut example of jinn possession causing mental illness, yeah? And certainly talking to various scholars and other people, I think the, the frequency is extremely low. It's 0.1% or even probably lower, yeah? Um, so it's a very, very, very rare event. However, it appears to be almost ubiquitous in terms of our understanding of how mental, mental illness operates, yeah? In that virtually everything is caused by jinn possession. Now, why is that? Well, first of all, it's a culturally held belief, yeah, and it's spread through generations. But also, it's actually, it's more problematic than that in many different levels. So if I explain, one of the problems is, is one of the ways it's problematic is that if you believe mental illness is caused by jinn, that almost takes away your responsibility of doing anything about it, yeah? Because look, you know, we're helpless, aren't we? What can we do? This person's possessed, what can we do about it, Yeah. What you don't then look at is why is it your wife is depressed? Yeah, what are the causes of that depression? Is it because of the family she's in? Is it because she's got six children and got no support? Is it because she's living in poverty? Is it because she's basically getting abused by her neighbours? All of those things come into play, yeah? Rather than simply dismissing it as gin possession and you need to do dawis for her and this and that for her kind of thing, yeah? So it, it takes away those that kind of thinking. And at a personal level, it also makes it easier for people to project other reasons. So, for example, again, if I give the example, supposing, you know, um, my wife or my daughter is, is actually mentally ill, yeah? Well, that may be because of how I'm treating her. It may be because I'm controlling her or I'm actually, she's a victim of domestic violence or whatever kind of thing. But then I have to look at myself and to reform myself before I, you know, I can help her. Whereas me, he said, well, she's possessed, you know, take her to the, uh, you know, basically uh, the imam or some kind of beer and do some tawis for her and you sort her out. Yeah, she has the problem, not me. And this is a big problem in our society as well. We tend to project onto other people the problem area rather than looking at ourselves and deep inside ourselves and saying, well, how is it we're contributing to the problem here? Yeah. And then the third issue worth bearing in mind is obviously there is a big industry in this country uh, that's almost underground where basically faith, not all faith healers are like this. Some faith healers, you know, can take advantage of people, you know, uh, and people advertise, you know, basically if you are possessed, you know, you can go and see this person uh, and, you know, for a fee, they will do do special prayers or give you tawis and this and that kind of thing. Whereas in reality, most of these things um, can be done by yourself. They are, you know, if you talk to people, you know, who want to give you the authentic advice, these are all basically uh, Quranic uh, uh, sunnas, uh, Quranic um, uh, surahs and ayahs and things that anyone can do themselves, really. Something special about going to see people. But that's, again, a cultural thing, yeah? So people will get emotionally and financially exploited uh, with this kind of area. So worth mentioning that. So again, I think in terms of mental health in general, uh, we can certainly improve a lot as a community by educating ourselves, yeah? As to what the causes of mental health are. And again, that doesn't mean some people think you know, you have to choose a religious perspective versus a, a, a dunya perspective, you know, basically secular medicine versus Islamic medicine. I think that's a false dichotomy completely. Yeah, obviously there was prophetic medicine at his time, as it were. That doesn't mean we shouldn't seek shifa for any illness. I mean, Allah commands us, you know, seek for the shifa for the illness you have. And that doesn't mean we throw out everything that's kind of Western and modern. Obviously, you have to balance these things. Yeah, I mean, you know, people rely too much sometimes um, on one or the other. Yeah. So on the one extreme, basically, we say mental illness, you know what, it's um, you don't need medicines for that. Just do du'a, improve your Rahman, read more Quran kind of thing, even though if you try and do that, I mean, the irony is that if you are severely depressed, for example, yeah, 
one of the signs of severe depression is actually losing religious conviction. Yeah, your religion becomes weaker and you have problems concentrating and focusing. So simply telling someone who's severely depressed to actually pray more or read more Quran is actually not helpful at all because they're going to try and do it and they won't be able to do it. And that will make them even more depressed. They'll feel, they'll feel even more inadequate and they'll feel even more distant. So, so some of these reactions that we have aren't helpful at all. So on the one hand, we have people who simply say you basically have to do dua and dhikr and Quran and salah. That's all there is. And on the other hand, people say, well, actually, forget about all that. Just take lots of antidepressants and things and you'll be fine. Yeah. But the reality is you do both. Of course, you take the medication when obviously it's prescribed and it's appropriate. But you do dua as well. And you ask for Allah's help because at the end of the day, the shifa comes from Allah. Yeah. But of course, the means to it may well be medicine you get from your GP. So I think there's a bit of a false dichotomy that we need to kind of integrate those two things. And the two things for me have never been separate at all. Yeah. And I think you need both. Yeah. Having said that, on the other side of the equation, I think in today's society, there is far too much reliance on medication. Yeah, I just I had a couple of comments yeah, on, on yeah. whilst you were speaking about um, the gin possession. I think, you know, one of the things that came to mind is, is, you know, we often say that, you know, if you had a physical problem, you'd, you'd, you'd easily be able to get help for it. And I think maybe because some mental health problems isn't, you can't actually see it. Um, you know, and then automatically it's like, well, if we can't see the illness, then it must be caused by something that's that's the unseen, um, yes. and it just, you know, and it's a it's it's a really simplistic way of viewing an illness and, and the human as a whole. So <clears throat> just a complete nonsense, of course, because yeah. I've got COVID. You can't see the COVID back the virus, can you? <laughs> yeah, that's caused havoc in the world, as it were. So that's that's part of the unseen as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And you know, I really, I really love how you deconstructed uh, um, the impact of jinn in our community, and you know, by by blaming God on jinn possession, black magic, sihrel, and all of that, you you do you do take away the responsibility. And I think equally, by blaming God on on jinn possession and black magic and the unseen, you you also um, you know contribute to this idea that mental illness is, is contagious, and you know. Um, you shouldn't go and visit somebody who who's depressed and unwell because the jinn might come and get you as well. It's almost like there's this bogeyman kind of kind of thing happening, um, and um, I think it's it's um, you know domestic violence in in Muslim communities is is rife, subhanallah, and it's it's really unfortunate and it is a big problem. And I, I think religion is often used um, in, in these kinds of situations as a, as a form of dominance and as a form of of, of power and sometimes it can can be done unconsciously and 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 I think it goes down to what you said about people not taking responsibility for you know what what they're doing and it takes the attention away from from themselves and you know on, on something external that they can't they they seemingly can't do anything about I remember when I was when I worked with with women who had been in domestic violence um you know this this you know her husband sent her off to Iraqi and the dodgy Iraqi at that as well um and you know he he came back to her and said look your husband also needs to do xyz your husband also needs to pray and read with you and he outright said you know my iman is fine my faith in Allah is fine this is your problem I'm, I'm not I don't need to read Quran with you I don't need to pray with you um so you know yes yeah, subhanallah yeah uh, what what you said I think it's, it rings true for for a lot and Go on, yeah. You're right. The domestic issues, yeah. So domestic violence is a massive issue in society in general. 
But of course, it has an extra layer of taboo in our, in our communities. It tends to be hidden much, much more. We tend to be much more inward looking. And you're absolutely right. It's a power of control thing. Yeah, it's a way of controlling people. At the end of the day, you know, you don't necessarily have to physically hit anybody to control them. The emotional abuse is as powerful sometimes as this. And this can be seen as a form of emotional abuse, basically, to try and convince someone, you know, classic gaslighting. There's something wrong with you, basically. Yeah, The problem that's all in your head. Yeah. And you're not depressed because of how I'm treating you or the fact that you're being controlled and you're a virtual prisoner in the house and you can't leave. You know, people can't speak English. They've got no means of contacting the outside world, all of that. Basically, you know, you own the problem and therefore it's the easy way of absorbing people and controlling them. No question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, w- one thing that you said that stuck out to me is, you know, we, you know, in Islam, we take a very holistic point of view. Shifa is from Allah himself, but, you know, the means can come in very different ways. And, you know, it was really interesting for you to say that you've never, ever seen, um, you know, a challenge or an obstacle to, to do both, to, to do your du'as, to do your salah, to do your dhikr and read your Quran, as well as take your medication and receive therapy. As a psychiatrist, as someone who works in the NHS, ha- I mean, is has there ever been a struggle for you to to come come and you know blend and integrate both ways? I mean, have you ever experienced an NHS where you haven't been able to to encourage um, the the religious kind of things? I think no. I think you, you've got to recognise that we're living in a secular society. Yeah, that's the number one thing you've got to understand. Yeah, so. You, you you can't simply just talk about these kind of things freely because obviously many of your patients and colleagues as well are, are going to be atheists and they're going to be quite agnostic or, you know, or whatever really. Yeah? So, so it's not always going to be receptive. So you have to be clear about who you're talking to uh, because otherwise if you are talking basically you bring your religious views into the consultation, for example, you can be accused of coercing people, for example. Yeah, or actually, you know, um, influence people who are already emotionally vulnerable. So you've got to be a little bit careful there. There are guidelines about what you can say. Obviously, with people who have got religious views, you want to use all that person's resources to help them improve. And obviously then, you know, prayer might be extremely powerful. Certainly as Muslims, it's very, very powerful. But even for Christians and Jews and other people of religious faith, as it were, it can be a very powerful means of therapy uh, and of treatment in itself. So yes, absolutely. Uh, I think in those in, in that respect, yes, it's, uh, it's certainly something I have never seen as a problem in terms of talking about, and you talk about holistic treatment. I'm a very, very strong believer in holistic treatment, not simply throwing pills and potions at people, because the human mind is much more complex than that. If it, were, if it was that simple, a tablet would cure all your problems, and they very rarely do. Um, so, so we have to look at everything that's um, about a person that can help them improve in their mental health. And certainly uh, spirituality, religious aspects, these are very important things for some people. Not for everyone, I have to say. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you, you know, when we have these kinds of discussions, we, we have to often, and this might come across as a little bit controversial, but that's what we're here for, you know, um, this dunya and this life wasn't meant to be easy and it wasn't supposed to be 100 perfect all the time and you know we're not supposed to be happy all the time because if we did then what would we be striving for exactly um and a lot of people you know would say 
you know, as someone I've mentioned this before, a lot of responses have been like, oh, so, you know, were we, were we made to struggle? Were we, were we made to be unhappy? You know, is it, you know, why is everyone else happy? And Allah has made me unhappy. Allah has chosen to give me a, a bad life. And these, you know, these are really common questions that we get at Inspirational Minds is why has Allah chosen me to, to have a terrible life? Why did Allah choose me to be, to be abused? And, you know, why hasn't Allah given me recovery and, and shifa? I mean, as a, as a, medical professional as somebody who also works in in the muslim sector what what would you say in response to that it's a very good question it's a very interesting i mean it's wider than just mental health isn't it it's a problem it's an issue for society isn't it really yeah and you're right as muslims look we have a um, a different worldview yeah um to to people who don't at the end of the day you know, for us, this life is simply a stepping stone. It's a means to an end. Yeah, it's an examination uh, for the life to come. And obviously, you know, as you rightly said that, you know, um, the ultimate goal, of course, is getting to Jannah. And actually, this life is a test. And there are many, many tests that many people have to go through in different ways. Whereas the, the secular view of this life is, you know, you only live once. Yes, basically do what you can. Enjoy your life while you can. So the pursuit of wealth and happiness becomes the goal, yeah? Uh, and what's interesting in, in, the, in, in that respect is that actually that then impacts on your mental health because, you know, uh, the, the goal becomes to be happy. Now, it's very difficult uh, in this world to be completely happy all the time. But that, if that becomes your pursuit, then obviously you're going to be unhappy a lot of the time simply pursuing that goal. Uh, and one of the, the one of the best examples I give to people in understanding this concept is the the, the power of advertising. Yeah, because if you and obviously we're all susceptible to it. You know, we all want the latest iPhone, the latest TV, the latest car, this and that kind of thing. Yeah. But if you thought about it, if you were completely content with what Allah has given you, why would you buy anything new? Yeah. And the whole purpose of advertising and there's a lot of science behind this. There are, there's a lot of psychology behind advertising. Is to make you feel unhappy. The purpose of advertising is to make you feel unhappy with what you have. Yeah, that's the goal. Because unless you can be made to feel unhappy, why would you want to go and buy the latest? So you have to be made to show, well, actually, your iPhone that you've got, it's okay, but you know what? You need to have the latest phone, this software, that software. Kind of thing. And if you don't, you're a bit of a loser, quite frankly, yeah? because everyone who's anyone has got the new iPhone 13 or whatever it's going to be. So, so, and the same goes for all other types of things. So we're constantly bombarded, whether we know it or not, with advertising and messaging, and some of that's quite subliminal, actually, um, that makes us feel unhappy, wants to buy more and different material things. But of course, once that happens, guess what? The next iPhone will come along in six months' time or a year's time kind of thing and do the same thing again. So we're constantly on this kind of, um, you know, hamster wheel of chasing something. Uh, and you're chasing dunya as a good phrase, trying to find this happiness, yeah, which we're never going to get. And the other aspect of that, of course, is wealth. Yeah. So if you ask people on the street, uh, what's your, you had one wish, what would it be? I mean, a lot of them would say oh, to win the lottery. Yeah. So they become multimillionaires overnight. But what's really interesting about the research when we look at millionaires is actually the levels of depression in millionaires is no different to that of the rest of society. So the research is actually quite fascinating. So all that happens in that group is you start comparing yourself with other millionaires. Not with where you came from. 
Yeah. So your reference point changes completely. Mm. So you're not happier. Even so you're though basically just rich and depressed <laughs> instead oh, of poor and depressed. <laughs> just look, I mean, don't, don't take my word for it. Just look at the number of celebrities. Yeah. Who've actually killed themselves, uh, committed suicide at the height of their powers. Yeah. Who've succumbed to drink and drugs and all the rest of it kind of thing. Who were, you know, behind the public face were deeply unhappy people. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you can obviously you can speculate by the why that is. But certainly from an Islamic perspective, as it were, if you simply immerse yourself in, you know, in dunya and run after that, you're going to be I, not as a psychiatrist. I'm slightly surprised that if I was an atheist and my life was very poor quality in different ways. Yeah. I'm surprised that, you know, um, you know, suicide would be an option for people. And it is for sadly for people as well. Yeah. Because then why would you want to carry on living your life in misery, for example? But of course, we have a completely different outlook, yeah? And that's where I think the mental health and Islam, you know, have a, a very important role to play in that you have to reframe the problems that you have in this world, yeah? So Allah is testing you for a reason. Basically, you know, if you people say if you're not being tested, you should be worrying, yeah? <laughs> because there's a reason for that. And um, so it's the people who are being tested, they're being tested for a reason. And if you have a life where it is full of struggle and you have to have sabr and you have to basically um, have sugar for what you have, there's reasons for that. Because at the end of the day, life is simply finite and is a test, isn't it? Yeah. And if we can learn to be able to manage our mental health in that framework, yeah, obviously, inshallah, you'll be rewarded for that, really. Yeah? And that doesn't mean, of course, you live your life purposely in misery and don't get any help for your mental health problems. That's not what it's meant to be. But my point is that for a Muslim, to be completely free of any anxiety, depression, and be completely in a state of absolute sukoon is unusual and it's abnormal if you think about it. Because that's a state you should be in Jannah. Yeah, that's a state you'll be in Jannah, inshallah, basically, where there is no, you know, anxiety, depression. That basic has been forbidden, yeah? But in this world, you have it as a means to achieving that state, really. It's a test for you in that sense. And I think, you know, from Muslims, certainly I would say, really need to reframe some of their mental health problems in that framework. Um, and obviously we're going into areas of Islamic theology here. So I'm, not, I'm not a scholar, but, but, you know, but certainly thinking of it uh, from that perspective, it's very, very different. Yeah. So a depression in a Muslim, you know, doesn't mean you don't get help and treatment, uh, but certainly at a mild level, think about why that is and, and what you, what, what it means as well. There's meaning behind it. Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things that brought, brought me, you know, closer to Islam was, you know, you know, growing up in a very secular kind of community, going to a, 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 a just a, a normal state school, you know, it was, you know, this YOLO mentality. Um, it didn't really serve anything. Whereas in Islam, it's like alleviate yourself in this dunya and you'll also get something in, in the hereafter, it's like it keeps going, right? Um, whereas, you know, as in the secular society, it's almost like whatever you've got in this world, is then that's it. You know, once you're, once you're gone and dead, and, and that's it. Um, and I think, you know, it, I'd like to bring in gratitude here without, you know, trying to Im, Im, imply that if you're, if, if you're struggling with your mental health, it means that you're ungrateful, which is also a very, you know, um, it's a pain point in our community as well. And speaking with people who have got mental health problems, often we get the whole, you're not being grateful enough. You have a roof over your head and you're getting food and X, Y, Z. But if, if we, if we, um, 
you know, go by the worldview that you've just provided and, and put shukr and put alhamdulillah in there as well, I think, you know, we, we have a really healthy window of the world. And and there's been so much research on, on gratitude and, and mental health and, and shukr and things like that. And, you know, we say alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen how many times a day? And we have to really think deep about it and be on the and surface and do tatabbur over what Allah has said. Why is Allah saying, why has it been part of our salah five times a day? And on that, I mean, I think the two key, was, certainly shukr is one of the key aspects. Another is sabr. I'll come on to sabr in a minute, actually. But... But shukr, one of the issues about shukr is obviously, you know, being grateful for what you have, being content with what you have, rather than what you haven't got. And, and I, I refer back to my previous conversation, that the whole of the society reminds you what you haven't got. Yeah, it's focused on exactly what you haven't got, therefore makes you unhappy. And that's what drives some of this. Whereas if you look at what, we, as I say, uh, in a way, one way of conceptualizing it is people look in the wrong direction. Yeah, so everyone has somebody who has more than them and everyone has somebody who has less than them. But we tend to focus on only the people who have more than us and not the people who have less than us. So it's an amazing stat I think I read some time ago that if you had a roof over your head and any money, any amount of money in the bank, you are automatically in the top eight, um, 90, uh, sorry, the, the top 8% of the world's population. Yeah, that's virtually everybody in this country, to be honest with you. Yeah. And of course, if you add to that other things, you become obviously. So we are actually under a very, certainly in the West, very, very blessed indeed in terms of what we have and we don't. Yeah. And again, I come back to the issue of which direction are you looking in? So, you know, in today's society, we are obsessed. And I'm not talking about Muslims here, as a general society, including Muslims, I have to say, because what's happening in the Muslim world now is simply copying what's happening in the Western world. There's virtually no, no distinction in terms of popular culture, you know, kind of thing. Uh, it used to be, but not anymore. So we are obsessed with celebrity culture, for example. Yeah. Look, all the magazines, hello, this and that kind of thing with what the wealthy have, what the pop stars and sports stars, they kind of have. Yeah. And if you think about it, there's lots of lists aren't there. There's a top 100 wealthiest people in the world, top 100, this kind of thing. Yeah. So we're obsessed with people at one end of the spectrum. Have you ever seen a list of the, the most poorest hundred people in the world? Yeah. Or the most, you know, you know, that doesn't happen, is it? No one cares about that. No one's interested in that. Whereas that should be actually your reference point for you to say, Alhamdulillah. Yeah. Because when you see those people, how they're living and how they're living their lives, yeah, and you look at what you have, I'll tell you, you'll be very grateful, yeah. Uh, and so it's changing the mindset, isn't it, uh, about which way are you looking in society, yeah? Um, because you know, if you look the other way, it'll make it much, much easier for you to say basically Alhamdulillah and have that sugar for all the ni'mah that you have, yeah, and rather than simply obsessing about what you don't have which is what society is driving you towards. It's, it's a different way, different mindset. Um, and, uh, and on that, uh, the other key concept is sabr, which goes along with shukr, basically, isn't it? The concept of having this beautiful patience. And with that, I mean, it's worth mentioning. I mean, one of my talks, I do uh, talk about this because even sabr in society in general is seen as a very positive um, uh, attribute. So in the 1960s, there was a very famous psychological experiment called the Marshmallow Experiment, yeah, which they did on children. You might have heard of it, yeah? Uh, and just for if your viewers base who don't know, what they did in the 1960s, um, uh, a psychologist called Walter Michel and his colleagues, uh, I think in the American, uh, American 60s, 67, something like that, anyway, uh, they took a group of um, children, uh, age four to seven, and they put them in a room and they recorded uh, what was happening and they put in front of them a plate with one marshmallow in it. Yeah. And they said to the child, look, um, 
we're going to leave the room now and you're going to be here with the marshmallow. Yeah, you can you've got a choice now. You can either eat the marshmallow straight away or if you can wait five minutes, you'll get a whole plate of marshmallows. Yeah. So the child has a choice, yeah? And what they did, they videoed people. And it was quite funny to watch some I mean, of the children, you know, what they would do kind of thing. And could they pick it up and put it back kind of thing. Yeah, but but obviously some of the children ate it straight away. Had no supper whatsoever, basically, yeah? And some waited and got a whole plate full. Or I think got two, three or four or something, more than one ten, yeah? And what was interesting about that study is not, in a sense, which children did what kind of thing. What they did is they followed up those children 20, 30 years later as they were adults now, married, you know, jobs and things, yeah? And they looked back uh, at how successful they were in terms of their education, qualifications, whether they ended up in prison, things like that. And they looked back as to, and they divided them into those who resisted, the Mahad Sabar, those that didn't. And they found, interestingly, that Sabar was a, it wasn't a strong predictor, it was a, it was a predictor of success. So even in this world, having some Sabar is a predictor of success, in the in the worldly in worldly things, yeah, and of course Islamically, it's absolutely essential to have because obviously you know we believe this world is temporary. So any difficulties that you have, if you have the sabr, inshallah, you'll get the reward in the hereafter, yeah. Uh, what I find always interesting, looking at uh, Islam um, as a concept, you know, often people, you know, often Islam is very very rigid. It seems very rigid, isn't it? Kind of thing, very harsh. Yeah, and just and lots of rituals. Them. Exactly, it's all rituals, guys. you guys are really boring, you don't do this, you don't do that kind of thing, yeah, you know, you don't drink, you don't take drugs, and you know, you're really boring, and, and my reply to that is interesting, I said, look, it's just a matter of perspective, because actually, Muslims, we are the ultimate hedonists, yeah, because you guys, basically, you want us to drink in this world, what have you got, basically, you've got, well, can you have your whiskeys and your lagers and your beers, yeah, okay, what kind of pleasure does that give you, okay, it gives you a bit of pleasure, I accept that, Gives you a headache afterwards and a whole lot of medical problems, yeah, which I've seen in my career, actually, yeah. But look, we're just waiting for the real stuff, yeah. So in Jannah, you get the same stuff, but without all of those things, yeah. And it's unlimited. So we're not waiting for a few pints or a few glasses here or a few bottles of wine. We're, inshallah, hoping, inshallah, for an unlimited supply of this stuff, which is infinitely better with what you have. So when you say, you know, you're bored, well, actually, it's all a matter of perspective and timeline, isn't it, kind of thing, yeah. Because the question of summer, it's a bit like the marshmallow test. You have your wandering now. We'll have a lifetime supply, inshallah, in the future. So that's my response, as it were. So it's all a matter of perspective, yeah, And when it comes to these things. So summer, again, is a very, very powerful concept for understanding and managing mental health problems and, and, and any kind of problem, to be fair, I think. Absolutely. And, and I think I really love how you've intertwined Islam into all of this, because these aren't new new concepts, you know, this idea of, you know, there's modern research on, on gratitude and, and sabr, I mean, you know, the Prophet ﷺ told us, you know, the only type of competition you should have with someone is, is with their taqwa and how, how how quickly you get to get to Allah. And and this idea of sabr, I mean, the Prophet ﷺ's life, I mean, is an example of beautiful sabr, right? We talk about, talk about Islamophobia, that's the example. That's the example to, to see, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, moving on slightly, I mean, we've touched upon consumerism quite a lot and social media and mental health has been a hot topic, you know, you know, for, for a long time, I guess, but more so now, especially with COVID. Um, have, is there a relationship between social media and, and Islamophobia? I, I get the relationship between Islam, uh, social media and mental health, but 
at MEND, is is there any trends? Do you, do you see a lot of Islamophobia on, on social media? And are people impacted by it? Is it a bit like, you know, uh, bullying online? How, how does it... I mean, we see it physically in person. Does it happen a lot virtually? Yeah, it's a big, big problem online, to be honest with you. I mean, hate whole business i mean islamophobia isn't just a phenomenon it's an industry and it's been written about by various academics kind of thing yeah it's a whole industry uh, with lots of different players for a different for various reasons yeah and it's big business yeah i mean we only have to look at the press and not only obviously the written press but also the all the press online now to see how widespread it actually is and of course it's very helpful because it's politically helpful because it helps to galvanize certain types of political support but it's also big business. It, it pays money to have stories bashing Muslims kind of thing. Yeah. So actually, it's a big problem. And of course, online, the online space, as you know, it's less well regulated than you know the press and other areas, even though they're not well regulated themselves kind of thing. Yeah. But online, of course, you can be who you want, hide behind all sorts of masks, as it were, and virtually say what you want. It's very difficult sometimes to do anything about it. OK, you can take people off Twitter, off Facebook and the rest of it, but then they will re-emerge with somebody else kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, online hate crime, you know, is, is a big, big problem. Uh, and obviously we're, you know, working with various other people and the government's looking at this, really. But, uh, but yes, I think Islamophobia does affect people because they see it. I mean, not only a personal level, you know, you can be cyber-bullied at school, for example, through social media very easily. Uh, so at an individual level, it can affect people. And I know we know that virtually all young people are now connected, aren't they? Um, so now you can be, you know, you can bully someone across the across the, the world, basically, very, very easily. Um, um, but so at an individual level, it impacts people, but also at a community level. Yeah. When you see basically our communities being treated in this way and double standards and the rest of it kind of thing, then obviously it's going to affect societies in general. And that's exactly what we say, that rather than simply, you know, getting angry about it and, you know, basically shouting at ourselves and talking amongst ourselves, we need to get organized and join not just organizations like men, but other organizations to collectively tackle this problem so we are stronger together. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, it affects us all. It's going to affect us all now and it's going to affect our children and our grandchildren going forward. So, um, so yeah, online is, is a big problem. Yeah. Um, I, know, I know what you said about, you know, the, the, you know, the online world not being uh, as easily regulated and uh, you can make change of some sort, but it's very surface level. But I know men did said something really fantastic a few years back with the Sun, um, the the yeah. newsletter title that was changed when Muslims were called terrorized sympathizers. For our viewers that might not know, I mean, could you tell us a little bit more about how men went about and did that? So the the headline a few years ago in the Sun was basically about. Um, uh, they said something like one in five uh, Brits basically support jihadis, basically, have jihadi sympathies. And it was basically a twisting of a survey um, that um, uh, another company did. And it asked people, basically, you know, would they support, basically, um, going and fighting in Syria? And what they were supporting, of course, is fighting against ISIS, not for ISIS. But they kind of twisted it and put a picture of jihadi John in the front. It was a very, very misleading headline, yeah? Uh, and, of course, lots of people complained about it. So did we. Um, and when they get lots of complaints, the, the, the regulator uh, that you complain to um, picks a lead complainant, uh, one complaint to respond to rather than respond to thousands or hundreds rather. Um, so it picked us. So we you know, had a, a long battle. And now you can imagine the Sun newspaper is part of the Murdoch Empire, the same empire that owns the Times. And these are billion pound empires. So they're not kind of small companies kind of thing. And they resisted changing this headline for so long. They had a lot of uh, to and fro, but eventually 
they were forced to concede and that was a kind of victory for us. But it just shows you that even with somebody who is that big and usually they're not used to people bullying them around or telling them change anything. They don't. Yeah. And in this case, they had to because it's patently false um, because we were collectively and you know, people, a lot of people got involved and they did it together. Then therefore that made a difference, I think. Yeah. So it shows you that actually change can happen if you understand the process, if you work with the process and if you are persistent, of course, then obviously if you have faith in Allah to help you in your ultimate goal. So, and there's been other examples like that as well. So we've shown and other people have shown that it's possible to do it. Yeah. Now, of course, there's lots of examples where, you know, we haven't been able to change anything. But that's because the regulatory system is so poor in this country. And other, other people say that, not just us. But the point is, just because something can't be changed overnight, doesn't mean you shouldn't attempt to do so. Yeah. And one of the problems that people have is thinking long term. You know, we are very short term emotional people. We want to see something happen now. We do something, you know, and we expect to see it now. Again, we should look at the seed of the Prophet ﷺ for our inspiration here and look at how many years, how many years it took him to get to, you know, where he wanted to in terms of where Islam was when he started his preaching or where it was at the end. Yeah, that didn't happen overnight. Yeah. You can't expect things to change overnight and you can't expect things to change without you sacrificing something. Yeah, because people need to understand that change will only happen if people invest their time, money and sacrifice something to let that happen. And it depends again on your outlook in life. Yeah. And of course, you know, I hope that all Muslims in this country, you know, uh, you know, if we can agree on one thing that we you know is that we all love our children. Yeah. And we all want our children to have better lives than we did and their grandchildren after that. And if we decided that we are now going to, you know, make our homes in this country, we have to contribute and participate in life in this country. And that will include you know, trying to safeguard your religion and your deen. Because if you don't do it, uh, as sore as anything, it'll get diluted. Uh, and the society will take over and take our children, their attitudes and all of that. So these kind of things have to be resisted. And you have to stand up for your rights as Muslims. And, and I think people sometimes think, well, what's the point? You know, what's the point of the Murdoch press? What's the point of politics and government's too big and they don't care? Yeah, of course they don't care. But, you know, at the time of Prophet ﷺ, you could say the same thing about the Quraysh. What's the point in taking on the Quraysh? They're such a big tribe. They've got so much power, so wealth. What's the point of doing any of that? Yeah. So, you know, Allah gives lots of different tests and lots of different examples, as it were. You know, nothing in life is is um, stable. Yeah. Whole empires have come and gone. Yeah. If all empires have come and gone, a few governments here and there is nothing. Yeah. So you have to have that conviction and have that resolve that, you know, you keep trying. And all these things are cumulative. The more you do, the stronger you become. The more funding you have, for example, the bigger the organization you become, the more influence you have, the more people notice you. You make a change here, a change there. Somebody else works with you. Somebody else works with you. And all the time you're building up your profile and the, your, your kind of um, your, your, your base, as it were. Yeah. So I think to say that really is a very kind of short term defeatist. And I, I would say personally, it's not befitting of an Islamic outlook. To be honest with you, to think, you know, just because we haven't seen, you know, Islamophobia kind of overcoming our time, it will not happen. Look, I'm not in any illusion that Islamophobia, you know, this journey we're on is not going to be solved in my lifetime, maybe even not my children's lifetime. But my contribution, and inshallah I'll accept it, is I've done a small amount 
you know, to actually contribute to that process. And then somebody else takes it further and further. And that's the way it is for all kind of movements. If you think about it, you know, look at the black civil rights movement and other movements kind of thing. They didn't get, get to uh, where they wanted to overnight. It took time. Yeah. And just like, you know, Islam wasn't spread overnight kind of thing. But, but when it came to a certain tipping point, then, of course, it was, you know, uh, much more successful. But, you know, we have to have that kind of long term vision as well, I think. Absolutely. And I think it's, um, you know, the saying of working smarter than working, working harder. And I, and I think with, with Muslims, like for, for Palestine is a very, you know, current, current yeah. uh, subject. When, when I mean, the Palestine-Israel uh, uh, conflict has has not, you know, it, it's not a new issue. But this year, it got a lot of attention. And when it first started, you know, Muslims were doing everything, everywhere, boycotting absolutely everything. And it really wasn't making a difference. And then when the whole targeted boycotted uh, boycotting happened towards Facebook, and, uh, and, and um, I think it was Twitter, maybe not Twitter, but it's definitely Facebook, and with the ratings on the App Store, you know, it plummeted when um, when Muslims got together and non-Muslims, when they targeted specific people, you know, their followers went down massively. They retracted their statements. And it, it's, it's just sad, subhanAllah, that it takes a massive, massive issue and, you know, just complete genocide like like Palestine, Israel and, and, the, and the Uyghurs and, and, you know, the, the issues happening in Burma. It takes things like that for the Muslims to come together and, and do something and do something smart and think about it, you know, think about something long term. You know, there's there's an issue with Palestine every single year, right? Usually in Ramadan and uh, Muslims will get together, they'll put a few things on social media and then within a week, it, you know, people just forget about it. And now, you know, you I'm still seeing posts on social media. People are still writing things. People are still, you know, re uh, retweeting and things like that. So, I mean... In in your time working at MEND, have you seen a shift in, in the Muslim community in any kind of way, whether it's attitudes, whether it's working together, uh, whether it's responding to Islamophobia in a specific way? Has there has there been a change? Inshallah, there is the change happening. Obviously, I'm, my experience is primarily with MEND, and obviously we you know only kind of formed in 2014 as such. I've only been around for, for six, seven years, and we've grown considerably in that amount of time um so yes i think people are now becoming much more aware of uh, these kinds of issues there's still a long long way to go as you say palestine is a great example we are still very heavily influenced by uh, emotion and things that are happening across the world which you know is inevitable because we're human beings we react to these kind of things yeah but actually most of islamophobia certainly in this country isn't at that level number one, um, and it's much more subtle and structural in its nature, how it discriminates against you. It's not overt at all, you know. Alhamdulillah, we're not having the problems that we're seeing in, 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 you know, uh, with the Uyghurs, for example, or India kind of thing, open, basically open abuse, blatant, yeah. It's much more subtle in this country. Um, and what's the one of the challenges for us is that, you know, when we are kind of trying to convince people to buy into the cause or do something for this area, it's very difficult because people can't see any obvious tangible benefits, you know? What is the benefit, actually, of understanding how the political system works, yeah? Or how your vote is used, or how you lobby an MP, or how why you sh why should you engage, you know, get people in the media um, to report, you know? You know, uh, one of the difficulties we have in our community is we're all obsessed, I mean, you know, I'm a doctor by training, yeah? But I think, you know, 
next generation, we need to invest a lot more in people becoming um, policy makers and, you know, politicians and journalists and editors and things like that. Because these are the people who run the country. Yeah, doctors and dentists don't run the country. We have no problem having Muslim doctors and dentists and run the NHS, as it were. But we don't run the country. And the country affects, you know, how the government functions, affects all our lives. Uh, and what we haven't invested in as a community is actually those kinds of roles, yeah? Because if you think about it, those kinds of roles are extremely influential in ways that we don't, we don't think. Look, um, let's take Palestine as an example. Yes, Palestine is interesting only on the news when, let's face it, Palestinians are being killed, yeah? Or something's happening to them, yeah? What do we think is happening the rest of the year? Well, everything else is still happening. They're still being oppressed, abused, you know, all of that. But it's not on the news anymore because it's not, it's not, it's not basically something newsworthy. Now, who determines whether something's newsworthy or not? It's the news editors. They will tell you, us, what is newsworthy, what's ranking highly, what's trending kind of thing. And they will decide what goes uh, as the first lead item of BBC News tonight. Yeah. Now, I can tell you tonight, there's hundreds of stories that could be the lead item news. It could be stories from India and China, but, but they probably won't be because something else will be determined by a news editor. This is what we're going with. And who, who influences them? Where have they been influenced from? Where has their training come from? Where are their attitudes come from? Yeah. Uh, so if we think about it, because we haven't got people in those key uh, areas, and another good example is a picture editor. You know, a picture paints a thousand words. You know, you can say a lot with a picture, can't you? You've picked the right picture and put it on the you know news uh, front page, as it were. That will influence people. You saw the, the recent uh, hoo-ha in America, the New York Times, published all the faces of those Palestinian children killed. There was uproar. It's never happened before, as it were, yeah? But credit to them, they did that because they wanted to show a different face of the conflict, really. And that caused an awful, um, not awful, I would say a very positive debate, but certainly awful from some people's perspectives. So this shows, actually, the importance and power. Now, the problem for us as men and the problem for us as a community is that we can't see that vision very easily, yeah? Um, we don't see anything instantly happening. So if you basically, you know, put your effort and money and resources into this, you won't see anything overnight. Um, whereas if you put, you know, you've given money to a charity, you can help that poverty, sorry, that poverty-stricken child kind of thing. You can see where your money's going and doing something and that'll make you feel better. Yeah, and that's great. You should do that. You should give your charity there. But actually, if you think about your future of the safeguarding the future of your dean in this country it's much more difficult to understand that yeah and that's i think our challenge so i think yes people are more aware of islamophobia now there's a long way to go but really we still need people now to, to more people certainly to uh think well actually you know what at the end of the day okay i give to charity over here in ramadan and other places and things i have my family i have my job i have my business but part of what i have to do and part of me as a muslim that should be part of my makeup is ensuring I have left a legacy for my children in the best way possible. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's just men. There are other organizations as well. But obviously men is the one that's closest to my heart because I think it's the one that best, best kind of tackles this problem that I want to basically help in some way. And everyone helps in different ways. I'm not saying give up your job and join men. You can help in a lot of different ways, but do something, do something to actually improve and safeguard the future of your child Islam in this country. Because if you don't do it, sure as hell, no one else will. And there will come a time when you will basically think, you know, you know, there used to be our grand, 
fathers and grandmothers, they used to be Muslims and people will lose that. There's no question, it's already happening in parts of our society already. People are losing their Islamic identity. Why? Because we haven't safeguarded it and society doesn't want them to have it anyway. Society would rather not have politically active Muslims talking about these social justice issues. You know, we, they, they, I'm sure people would rather we just basically go to our mosque and do our prayers and give our uh, zakat and do our fast yeah, and not say anything, not speak up about what the government is doing here or what's happening over here or abroad kind of thing. But at the end of the day, as Muslims, it is our duty and inherent upon our deen to speak up you know, when there's injustice. And, and that's something I passionately feel about. Definitely, and and I think you know the 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 concept of being part of a community and, and this sense of belonging plays a massive role in our well being. You know this 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 feeling of belonging to a home and belonging to a community, and you know feeling like you're welcome and you know that you have a sense of community. It doesn't. It's not just our immediate people that we see at the at the jamaat. It's not you know the the sisters that we see at the halakha circles. It goes much much beyond that and you know this the the hadith where the prophet sallallahu likened the ummah to one body it's not just physical pain it is it goes it can be applied to everything and 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 what you you know explained what you had just said then the the sense that i was getting is a lot of you know selectivism on our part like we'll do this part of islam because it's the easiest and it's the one that will get us out of trouble quote unquote and we'll pick this islam right now because it's trending and everyone's doing it and if i don't do it i'll feel guilty and i'm not using my my social media right um so yeah we've spoken a lot about immediate gratification and sabr and shukr and i just wanted to go back to you know your your profession in in psychiatry and um, I'm sure you're you're you you're up north, so I'm sure you have a really really diverse um, amount of people that come come to you and ask for help, and your and your clientele must be really diverse, mashallah. So I was just you know wondering what do you feel or what do you what have you observed are the main differences between uh, in mental health between ethnic minorities and non-ethnic minorities is is because uh, for example, I mean in spiritual minds, one of the things that we have found is a lot of people talk about um you know psychosomatic issues so they might not necessarily say that they've got depression or that you know um that they've got these uh cognitive distortions per se but they'll complain a lot of physical problems and and that they're getting down because of their physical problems another issue that we find is you know scrupulosity is a religious ocd that is a huge huge thing that in spiritual minds we get a lot of people saying that they have really negative and terrible thoughts about Allah and Islam and you know to a point where some people even feel suicidal because they feel like they're doing shirk um I mean that that's more specific to the Muslim community but I mean have you what have you sort of observed about about the differences in, in mental health yeah, so obviously there are religiously related mental illnesses specific to the Muslim community, and you've given a couple of good examples there. Um, and in fact, you know, I, on a personal level, I've had OCD, and my OCD started um, with uh, with vodu, basically doing vodu, as it were. So, um, you know, uh, I can go into that if you want me to, but uh, but but certainly there are lots of things related to that which I think are are specific. In general terms, though. Um, I guess, I mean, I mean, obviously mental illness affects everyone. It doesn't look at your religion or your skin colour or the rest of it kind of thing at the end of the day. So, you know, it affects everyone worldwide and different communities. 
But in terms of the Western kind of English speaking community, as it were, I think people are a little more open in talking about these things now. Whereas I think in our communities, there are still a lot of taboo and stigma in openly talking about something. Yeah. And it, 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 it almost takes longer to get to the heart of the problem because people will give you half a story or tell you something they want you to hear or is acceptable to hear. And then when you go into it more deeper, you find actually the root of the problem is the marital relationship or or something of that nature kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas you was you were told a different story before. So it, it is a bit harder, really, um, from that respect. Um, the other thing is because it's um, a bigger taboo and stigma I've already talked about. Um, mental illness in our communities tends to present later, certainly serious illness. So serious illness, for example, you might come across psychosis, where people have delusional and false beliefs or hear voices. Schizophrenia you might have heard of as severe mental illness. Um, for example, those kind of things actually are often hidden within families sometimes. Yeah, People don't present or they go off to see a beer and try this tawiz and that tawiz. And I've been surprised actually sometimes because people sometimes, um, you know, um, can take years going round the houses and eventually when things get so bad, their family have to take them to the A&E or the doctor and get them treated really. So uh, again, that's really quite sad that, you know, people are, are not presenting um, uh, not presenting early enough because the longer you leave mental illness, in some cases, the worse it can be longer term for you. Yeah. And in some cases, I've already mentioned um, that people aren't even presenting at all. They are simply uh, locked into a cycle of going to see people who are peers and imams and that kind of thing. And, some of these people do have the knowledge and they'll say, look, you know, this is the where you should go. But some of them don't and some of them will exploit you. I remember um, being a junior doctor uh, working in Nottingham many years ago. And I was called to the house of, to see a man who was in his 60s of Pakistani origin. Uh, he was an elderly man upstairs. He had a lot of medical problems, diabetes, heart problems. But when I saw him, he was uh, clearly hallucinating. He was seeing lions in his bedroom and all sorts of things, trying to climb out to the bed and the window. And his wife was there and his two sons were there. And I said, look, clearly he's mentally ill. I said, look, he needs to come into hospital. It could have had a stroke, could have had a heart attack. You know, it could be an infection, could be anything affecting his mental faculties. Um, so uh, I need to take him into hospital now. Um, and they looked at me and went over into a corner of the room, had a bit of a conflab between them. Uh, and they came back and said, you have to take him right now. I said, yeah, of course, right now. He's clearly, men he's clearly very unwell in his treatment. I said, why? I said, can, can we bring him in later tonight or tomorrow? I said, what have you got to do that's more important than bringing your father into hospital? And they said, we've got to go to Birmingham. We've got to go and see our beer. And I said, mm, that's interesting. So their first kind of thought was, let's go and see the beer. I said, look, you're not putting him in a car and taking down the M42. OK, I'm not going to allow that. I'm going to basically insist that you have to come into hospital now. and You can ask your beer to come to the hospital here. But that's not happening. But what I found that really interesting is that their first thought, you know, was actually to go to the beer, which was interesting considering, you know, you could have had all sorts of things. But again, we have that mentality as well. So not only we're presenting late, we're presenting just to that, that subculture uh, of uh, looking at imams, looking at for religious cures for things which are medical problems, essentially, yeah? Um, and and then, then obviously you have the other stigma of, of discussing with anyone. So even if you do go and see a GP, you want to give them half a story, you don't want to see a referral to a psychiatrist, you don't want that on your record, uh, and the, all the ideas about psychiatrists are going to basically, you know, commit you to hospital, throw away the key, lock you up, label you insane, all of that kind of stuff comes into it as well. So, so they're the kind of generic things that I think are the differences, really. Um, but again, the key to it is all, I'm afraid, is education. It comes back down to that simple thing. If we were better educated as a community, these problems would be much less, much less.
Um, I just wanted to, you know, I just suddenly remember when you when you said that these uh, misconceptions that people have about psychiatrists and psychologists and GPs, and you know, from our recent research um, that we conducted, is a lot of people have said they don't want to go to a GP or a psychiatrist because they're really worried about prevent, and they're worried that you know NHS staff are uh, are held by oath by prevent. I mean, what can you can you can you separate myths and and facts for us here? So PREVENT is a um, part of the government's counter-terrorism strategy um, and in 2015 it became um, basically a, a part of the statutory requirement for all public sector employees that includes doctors, teachers, social workers, anyone who's employed by the government to have what we call due regard for it. I consider it when they came across pupils, students, patients who they thought were being drawn into terrorism. Yeah. So, so that's something that's coming in recent years, and that obviously is something men opposes because we feel it's highly stigmatizing, highly Islamophobic, and racist. And, and to be honest with you, not just us have said that; other people have said that as well. Because the chance of you being referred under prevent are much higher if you are some of the ethnic minorities, if you're a Muslim. And so, I don't want to get into all of that. I guess what I would say to people is um, that shouldn't stop them uh, certainly seeking health care. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, you know, it's important we get mental illness treated. Now, of course, whether the person then sees you as a security risk or not depends on what you say. Yes. Uh, and there's no doubt that, you know, throughout history, you know, not never mind Muslims and people who are mentally ill sometimes can say things which are concerning. Yeah, for example, uh, and think about violent acts and things like that. But that's a very, very, very small percentage kind of thing of the population. Yeah. So generally speaking, it's not a massive issue in the sense that it should stop you kind of seeking help. And I wouldn't recommend that at all. Yeah. Um, a lot of healthcare professionals actually are quite sensible. Yeah. They understand that their job isn't to be agents of the government. Their job actually is to treat you. Yeah. So just because there may be some issues there, it doesn't mean they're automatically going to refer you to prevent. Yeah. Some might do. Again, it's a very, very small number, but most actually, most time it actually won't actually happen. So I wouldn't want that to become an issue for in the, our community. Think, well, actually, we should therefore boycott the NHS or not go and see healthcare professionals because of that possibility. Well, great. I'm, 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 I'm hoping that this will be reassuring for a lot of our, of our listeners. And it's just, I think it's sometimes some people need to hear it from a, a fellow, fellow Muslim and a fellow medical professional. So you touched on a couple of things that the, that our Muslim community needs in order to move forward. You know, we need education. We need to destigmatize. We, we need to get rid of these stereotypes. It, you know, what else would you suggest for our Muslim for the Muslim community to move forward in terms of addressing, you know, these social ills that we have, the 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 mental health of our community? How do we move move forward? Is it is it just education? Do we do we need action? Do we need social programs? Look, there's a lot of things you can do. I think one of the the difficulties we, we have that affects our mental health is basically our lifestyles. And you mentioned social. We mentioned social media already. And how that, you know, appears to run our lives. You know, we can just see the changes, you know, in the past 10, 20 years, really. And certainly in my lifetime, I've seen amazing changes. You know, having grown up, you know, in, a, in my era, in my childhood was without anything electronic devices, without mobile phones and computers and things like that kind of thing. And to, to, to live in a world now where we're all connected, never mind connected to our friends and family, we're connected globally to this thing called the internet and the social media and all the rest of it. It is really is phenomenal. But there is a price to pay for that being that connectivity, as it were. Yeah. And that means that we've lost 
some of the ability to actually regulate our own bodies in the way they should be. Yeah. So, you know, Allah says in the Quran numerous times about see, you know, how the day alternates with the night. The night doesn't catch up with the day. It didn't catch up with the night kind of thing. And there's a reason why the nighttime is there. Yeah. It's for us to rest for the day ahead kind of thing working. Yeah. But what we've seen certainly in recent years is a 24-7 type lifestyle, haven't we really? Yeah. We've lost that kind of, you know, that um, that boundary. So we're constantly connected all the time now, 24-7 to our phones. And we're checking our our Twitter feeds and our Facebook posts and all throughout the night and our TikTok videos. And, it's a con and that, of course, has an effect. And one of the key effects it has, it affects our sleep patterns really quite profoundly. Yeah. And there's a lot of research which shows that if you don't get adequate sleep of a sufficient duration and quality, it's going to affect you in all sorts of ways. Yeah. And one of the ways, of course, is mental health. It's going to make you more depressed, have difficulty concentrating, focusing. And we're seeing that, you know, all the time in our schools and kids coming to, to, to school lessons and tired and the rest of it kind of thing. Yeah. So so simply being able to regulate your life in a normal cycle is really important. Yeah. And part of that is going to be being able to put your phone to one side at night and go to sleep and not simply check it throughout the night kind of thing. Um, because that what that does is simply activates the brain. Now, leaving aside all of the unknown, you know, God knows what the, the long term effects of it is going to be of radiation from phones long term. We just don't know, basically. Yeah? The research isn't all there yet. Forget about all that to one side. Just basically the psychological anxiety that being connected has on people is significant, isn't it? Because that, that's what it does. I mean, you know, the whole again, I come back to, you know, I talked about advertising before, you know, the whole system. Uh, Facebook has of, of likes and dislikes, you know, of, of, you know, retweeting. All this is based on the same kind of psychology. Yeah, because everyone wants the perfect Instagram picture. Everyone wants those likes and those retweets, that kind of thing. And that becomes the means to the end, isn't it? Kind of thing. Yeah. And if you don't get them, then basically you're a bit of a loser and you're, you're not within crowd. And actually, you know, that makes you unhappy. Therefore, you're kind of constantly trying to chase the likes and the Instagram posts and the rest of it, really. So whole of social media again is a bit like advertising it almost perpetuates ideas that you know you're not as good as other people or you need to do better or you know whether that's your i mean you know there's a whole area for example i mean it's been shown that people are much more depressed now about their facial appearances seriously there's a lot more people going for cosmetic surgery now because of social media because and also because the pandemic we're on computers all the time so we're looking at our faces all the time rather abnormally actually yes um so and, and there's all of that kind of thing people are unhappy with their appearance and all this kind of thing so it all feeds into one another so one of the key things is we're going to have to be able to disconnect from the world wide web or the internet or connectivity uh, because we need to reclaim some of what we need as human beings in terms of time for ourselves yeah and sleep is very important. And with that, of course, go also goes over the basic things. Yeah, because look, um, I've had lots of people come to my clinic over the years uh, on lots of antidepressants. And, you know, they're not really clinically depressed. They've got difficult lives, but they're not clinically depressed. And I say to them, let's look at what you can do. I'll come to medication in a minute. But what we can do, I mean, sleep and connectivity is a big one. But also the very basic things like exercise and eating the right foods. We don't do that either. You know, we've moved to a fast food kind of culture where we you know it's much more of a 
a situation where we you know we don't cook as much anymore basic stuff as it were we're eating stuff like, and nothing wrong with eating from you know restaurants and things like that kind of thing but certainly eating more processed foods with all kind of chemicals in them we don't know what the effects of those are either yeah and of course we sit in front of our laptops and our computers and our tvs all day and we simply don't move very much uh, and we're not built to do that either and we know the effects of exercise how the positive effects of exercise on cognitive functioning and and certainly very powerfully very very powerfully actually i've seen effects on mood uh, quite profound and when people have been exercising regularly kind of thing yeah so all of these kinds of things really are really really quite important but we don't give anything to them all we kind of focus on sometimes is if we have a problem well gp antidepressants what what's the solution you know what tablets and pills do i need well, actually, what you need is relook at your lifestyle and, and how you're living your life, actually, is as powerful, if not more powerful than um, than pills. I mean, I mentioned pills. Sorry that I should actually finish that bit of the story is that I said before that we are just too focused as a society on um, antidepressants and other pills to cure psychiatric problems. Yeah. Now, of course, I'm a psychiatrist. Yeah. I prescribe all sorts of medications and I would never tell someone to stop the medications being prescribed. Yeah. But generally speaking, certainly at a primary care level, it's very easy to you to go to your GP and talk about your problems. And the end of your five minutes is what you get. You know, you get prescribed some medication. Yeah. Because what else the GP is going to do? They're not going to be able to solve your life problems for you, are you? But what does that do? That actually tells you as a patient, well, my problems are going to be solved by a pill. Yeah. And then when that pill doesn't work, what do you do? You go back and get some more or you increase the dose and you get back some more. You change it. But it kind of conditions you to think that your life is basically your your depression is simply a function of something that you know you can't control and only a pill can cure. And I've had so many cases of people come to me, tell me their story, and I said, "Look, this is really bad news, but your life isn't going to be made better by a pill or any number of pills. Yeah, it's going to be made better by you looking at making some life choices and changes and actually hoping, you know, inshallah." The, the slow change comes with it. and people are quite surprised by that because they've been taking these things for years sometimes actually and so i think that's another thing that people shouldn't assume necessarily that all their life problems are going to be solved by by simply taking a tablet and they're going to have to look at their own lives and lifestyles and actually start changing those um, and all these things are important so you know social media phone sleep exercise the right diet all of this kind of stuff will really help give you a not only a balanced physical health, work life and balance as it were, but also but giving you a positive mental health balance as well. Absolutely, and I think you know, just just rewinding back what you said about um about social media and and this twenty four hour sort of lifestyle we've got. I think another big issue is how accessible we've become, and you yep. know, for a lot, of, I know for for myself, Alhamdulillah, you know, I, I take you know. I take pride in the fact that a lot of friends and family can come to me for help and advice and vice versa as well. Yep. But, you know, during COVID, I did find myself going from work to socializing through my phone to constantly being available at crazy hours of the night. And it's great. I love being a good relative. I love being a good friend for my for, for my friends. But equally, it got to a point where I was like, this has got to stop. Like, you know, I'm completely burning out. I didn't even know friendship burnout was a thing until I experienced it, you know. And um, I think, you know, this I this this concept of immediate gratification is, is a huge problem in our community. And 
it goes back to what you were saying earlier we don't look towards the sirah for inspiration enough we look towards the life of the prophet sallallahu you know uh, the battle of uhud and the battle of uh, badr is often something that comes up in conversation you know look how successful they were even though they were a minority look at how much help allah gave them xyz and it's like there are also other gems within the prophet sallallahu life which we just we just don't don't look towards them um, and you know i'll share a personal experience with medication as well I had a really fantastic GP when I when I had a and had a um, you know I, I was struggling at a certain period of my life. I was on citalopram and you know I had like a um, a a you know um, a thought that you know once I'm on medication I, I you know I was the idea of medication was just something you know it was almost like I didn't the, what I was telling myself is if I take medication I don't have faith in Allah. That's what I was told and I kept telling myself that. And then when, you know, I did pluck up the courage to ask for medication, my GP very frankly said, like, this isn't going to solve your problems. The least mm. that it will do is it will take the edge off so that your problems can be a little bit more manageable. It will make you just it will make your head a little bit less foggy and just you know, her being completely honest and on the table about that just completely changed my perspective of, of medication. And I just don't think people hear it enough that medication is not the answer to all your problems. It's not going to fix everything. For some people, it makes very minor differences. And for others, it makes, you know, major differences and completely changes their life. But we have to have a very realistic perspective of medication and what it can do for you. That's right. And also on the other side, you know, obviously some medication is essential for people. I mean, they, they shouldn't stop it. If they need medication for their long-term depression, they should stay on it, certainly, kind of thing. Yeah? So if it's been prescribed, it's fine, you should stay on it. All we're saying is exactly that, what you said, as it were. It's not the answer to everything. You have to balance everything, look at holistic treatments, yeah, and not simply rely on one. Um, because there's too much sometimes placed upon medication as the, the answer. But again, you know, from an Islamic perspective, you know, uh, to, uh, basically, you know, you have to tie your camel and trust in Allah, not just trust in Allah, you know, at the end of the day. You obviously leave your camel to wander off and say, I pray to Allah, you should tie it first and then pray to Allah as well. So again, this false dichotomy, I think, is a problem that we think one or the other. And we somehow have this idea that it's, it's un-Islamic, yeah, to rely on medication and rely on therapists and rely on, you know, whereas that's always been part of uh, the Islamic world. Islamic, the Islamic world were world leaders, in medicine, many of the surgical treatments and medical treatments that we have now can be traced back to some of the greatest Islamic physicians, you know, um, many, many hundreds of years ago. So it's always been part of our tradition. We've never really, uh, and at that time, that was the golden age of Islam. And, you know, the two things went hand in hand very successfully. So one thing I should have mentioned also as a mental health and, and uh, social media is, is actually people's um, addiction to social media, I should have mentioned that as well. Not just use of it, I think addiction to it uh, is that. And WhatsApp is a great example. I mean, it's not quite a social media platform in some respects, but uh, but you know, you know, people can kind of get on it and it's not get not get off. We're on so many groups now, kind of thing. You go from one to the other, kind of thing, and you feel you have to scroll down, have to know what's going on in every group. And the question is basically, is this fear of missing out, isn't it? That, you know, you need to be keep up with all the latest news everywhere. And if you don't, you might miss something, yeah? But that itself creates anxiety, doesn't it? Because a lot of the news that spread is a lot of it's bad news, actually. It's always something awful that's happened across the world or some kind of conspiracy, some deaths here kind of thing, COVID this, um, shortage of this kind of thing, someone's been killed. You know, and all that has an effect on you, Yeah. Um, if you just basically constantly, you know, consume a diet of negative bad news uh, all the time on social media, that's going to make you feel anxious. 
Uh, it's going to affect how you think and how you see people. So that's really important as well, is that we all need to have some downtime off this stuff, yeah, and not constantly watch the news 24 I mean, when I was growing up, you know, you could only, you could only watch the news at certain times. It was 1 o'clock, 6 o'clock, or 9 o'clock, and whatever it was, yeah? And that was it. The rest of the time, there was no news to watch. Literally no news. You had to wait for it. And now, you can literally 24-7 be basically, you know, connected, and that's all you can consume. And that's a problem, I think, seriously, because, again, we're not programmed to, to take all that in. It's just too much. And obviously, different people can handle different amounts of news and things like that, but we can't all handle that amount of stuff. But the problem is we, we basically live our lives on our phones now. Yeah. And actually, when we get notifications, we're simply not able to ignore them till tomorrow. You just can't do that, can you? When you get that ping, that light, that kind of notification, you just have to look at it. If the phone is there, you're going to look at it. And you're going to look at it, you get sucked in and back you are in the same cycle. And that, that is a problem, I think, mental health wise. Yeah, I think I think so. You know, subhanAllah, I remember a few years ago, you know, when we were on our phone, my dad would be like, you know, I remember the days when you guys used to go out in the garden and, and play games now. And, you know, subhanAllah, this is the same guy who's now looking at YouTube videos all day long of, like, Bangladeshi villages and farms. And, you know, subhanAllah, it's like, it's crazy, isn't it? Um, and I think it's impacted everyone. And, and it's great, you know, now my parents can speak to their family members in Bangladesh whenever, wherever. And it's fantastic. We're connected more as, as a distant family more than ever. But equally, you know, mum is constantly on the phone screaming at someone about something and someone said, and, and it goes back to how accessible are we and how much are we letting, you know, do the positives outweigh the negatives? I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, social media could be a discussion of itself, couldn't it? Yeah, well, it's quite a simple way of putting it, to be honest with you. Do you control the phone or does it control you? And the problem is too many people, the phone's controlling us. Yeah, we're a slave because we've allowed ourselves that kind of lifestyle i mean i'm in the same boat i mean everyone's now virtually got a mobile phone and a smartphone and we do so many things on it and alhamdulillah as you say it's been amazing in so many ways you know to think that when i was growing up you know we communicated my family from pakistan and we communicated by letter we had just have those blue aerogram you know very older people remember what i'm talking about blue envelopes came and you know that's the only way you commit obviously you can you could phone you could book a three-minute call. It cost you a small fortune. And even then, the line was a bit crackly and this and that. And now, through a piece of metal and plastic, you can basically talk in real time to your family across the world. SubhanAllah, that technology is mind-blowing. Absolutely. And, and yeah, if you think about it in terms of human history, this has never happened before. Yeah? Kind of thing, yeah? I mean, never before in human history have people been connected in this way. You know, it reminds me of the Prophet ﷺ, the Isra wa Miraj. Yeah, when he came back and told that story, they made fun of him. So how can you go for all that way to Jerusalem, as it were, in a night kind of thing? And now you practically could go in one night, those places, depending on what kind of transportation you have. So it's made the world a much more smaller place in terms of us being able to talk to each other. But as I said there's clearly a price to pay for that connectivity in that we, we have difficulty in actually managing the tool that we have. And it starts controlling us in ways that we never thought and ways... We impact us on negatively definitely yeah i love what you said it's made the world a smaller place and i guess that means there's less space for ourselves right you know subhanallah yeah um so i you know you touched upon it earlier and i'd be really interested to to hear about your personal experience of ocd and and wudu if you wouldn't mind going into into that in whatever amount of detail yeah, yeah, that's fine. No, I, I mention it because it's interesting having some personal experience of these things always helps, isn't it? Understand and explain it to people. 
um, in terms of what you do. So, so um, when I was growing up, there's a there's a very interesting. Um, I mean, when I was growing up, there wasn't many resources for Muslims. Uh, so as a Muslim child, there's not a lot out there. But I came a, a across a book called Heavenly Ornaments. Heavenly Ornaments um, is a translation of Behishti Zebad, which is a Pakistan is a book from a Pakistani scholar, Kamalna Ali Ashtif Tanwi, written I think in the 12th century. Um, it's a very kind of major text in Pakistan. It's a well-known text, as a religious text. But the problem is, it's simply a, a text without much explanation, and it's simply a list of do's and don'ts, and it's pretty kind of you know black and white the way it's written. So, for example, one of the things in it that I read, I was reading about doing wudu, for example, and it said that you know if the water when you're doing wudu doesn't cover every single hair, every single hair. Your wudu is invalid and your salah is invalid. Yeah. Now imagine if you're a 12, impressionable 12, 13 year old reading that. Yeah. So I started, I mean, before that, I had no problem doing wudu basically. Yeah. Then I started thinking, but have I? Have I covered every hair? Or maybe I'll do it again once more. And the next time, actually, I'm not sure I'll do it again. And you can see how that led to me repeatedly doing my wudu just in case I miss something. So this led to a situation where I was taking literally 25 minutes to do wudu because I was just repeating it so many times and backwards and forwards and it was, it was obviously causing a great deal of consternation in my family who couldn't get into the bathroom because I was there all the time doing wudu, essentially. So, and this caused me a lot of distress. I started worrying about my salah and the rest of it kind of thing. So again, I know there's a big overlap. We don't have time probably to go into the, the overlap between waswasa uh, on the one hand and the OCD on the other, but this was certainly on the severe end of the spectrum. Um, um, but one of the things... I will say, certainly at that time, I had no idea what it was. Um, I didn't see anyone. And, and naturally, in, as a social experiment, it, it kind of petered out. It tended to almost kind of die down in my university years kind of thing. Now, I still have remnants of it. But, but, but in a sense, it kind of cured itself, which is interesting in itself that, you know, these things do die out sometimes. And kind of, you know, but obviously, at the time, they're very, very distressing. I mean, you know, for OCD, there are treatments available, medication, therapy, things like that. But obviously, from an Islamic perspective, they can be quite... Quite distressing. All I will say, certainly, is obviously you can do salah and dhikr and all these kind of things. But in terms of the thoughts that people get about Allah and shirk and all the, the bad thoughts that they get, these are part and parcel of the condition. And you have to <coughs> simply accept that part of the condition <coughs> is that you're going to get these thoughts. You don't ask for them. You don't think about this coming to your head. And of course, we know that things that, you know, all deeds and things are rewarded and punished by intention. And if you have an illness where, you know, you can't help it, basically, in a sense, then Allah, in His mercy, inshallah, will, will forgive that. So that's not shirk in that sense, as it were. It's not something you're actively seeking out to, to think about. But these things, thoughts do happen. I, I still get them sometimes, and many, many other people do. But they're part and parcel of the condition. And it's important to, to remember that. But yeah, I mean, there's lots of um, stories like that people have, kind of thing, which, you know, where there's an overlap between... Um, our religious ideas and things and, and OCD and that's, that's the case with um, all mental illness it, it often is a reflection of our personal interests, tastes, backgrounds religion, ethnicity and all those things Yeah, I think it's um, you, you know, and the way you, you mentioned that it kind of gradually sort of you know left your everyday life as you reach university years and I'm sure that's due to education you know educate yourself about Udu and the validity and invalidity um, or what makes it valid and invalid um, and I think it's really important for our viewers to know that OCD isn't just about cleanliness even though yours was related to Udu and purification for Salah it wasn't about that it was it had nothing to do with the idea of being clean it was actually about whether the your water has reached all your hairs which is 
is what made your wudu valid. So I think that is really interesting and jazakallah khair uh, for, for sharing that. And to be honest with you, most of the time it isn't about being unclean. I mean, most OCD, obviously not religious, but I'm talking generally now, uh, is basically two types. One is contamination. And actually, that's where COVID's made things worse for some people. Actually, it's about contamination, about you know having kind of a dirt or infections. It was it's not about being clean of itself, um, and also about checking things, taking doors and windows are locked and things like that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, and unfortunately, the hand washing rituals that we're all doing now because of COVID actually have made things worse for OCD sufferers um, because they they're being told to wash your hands more often, and that's what they try not to do. So, um, so yeah, it's it's a difficult one. Uh, subhanallah may Allah make it easy for those who are suffering with OCD during these difficult difficult times um so you know uh, I, I just want to end and this is something that we like to ask all our guests and you know self-care for Muslims is is a really big issue and it's you know it is a sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu to, to take care of, of yourself and he often did it in in many ways and you've mentioned a few but I just want to you know ask yourself how how do you look after yourself what is what is your self-care and as a very busy gentleman i'm sure that you don't often have time but if you'd like to share <laughs> yeah i'm not sure i'm the best example for people to look up to i honestly don't i don't think i do it very well at all to be honest with you my some of my work life. you ask my family they'll say i don't at all i have no work-life balance and i don't give them enough time kind of thing so i'm not sure i'm the best example but if i can some generic generic advice um, as it were. So, so yeah, I mean, looking after yourself, look, at the end of the day, you know, as believers, uh, we have to ensure, like I said, it's so important um, that we have to maintain that link with Allah and our identity as Muslims has to be strong and not only has to be strong for ourselves, for our children as well. That's something more really important because at the end of the day, whatever happens in this world, yeah, it's going to be temporary. It's going to end one day and, and one day, it will literally seem like a dream. One of the most powerful things in the Quran, I've forgotten which verse it was. I'll ask people, you know, in the hereafter, you know, how long did you, were you on this earth for? And they will say a day or part of a day, a day or part, literally a day or part of a day. This is what the whole existence that we strive for will be one day. So that's, a, I think, a good way of keeping perspective on whatever's going on in your life. You know, it's going to be temporary. It's going to end one day and one day it will seem literally like a dream. Um, so that's the first thing. In terms of how we live our lives, yeah, obviously, again, I, I give this advice to myself foremost that your family is it deserving of your time um, uh, more than anyone. And I guess we, we give far too much of our time to our virtual friends on uh, Facebook and Twitter and, and the rest of it. And not enough time to the people living we're living with. Um, and that's important. We have to accept as Muslims, we look at the world differently. So we, we shouldn't be swayed by other people's standards and views about things. Yeah. We should have the courage of our conviction stand up for what's right, even though that might be against what the political establishment might say and other people might say. Uh, and that's always been the way with Islam. You know, at the end of the day, if you believe in what you believe in and you believe you have firm, firm conviction, it doesn't matter what everyone thinks. Yeah, if, Even if the whole world basically was to deny the existence of Allah, it doesn't mean that he doesn't exist. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, I think you know, routines are very important. And I've said having a good sleep routine is, is really, really crucial. Being able to switch your smartphone off, I mean properly off, not just on silent or standby or whatever, that's really crucial, I think. I think being able to do the basics like just eating exercise, simple things like that, which are hard to do, and, and especially in COVID, when we're all working from home, working in front of our laptops, you know, just taking time out to get out and physically do something is important, yeah? Um, and... Um, and yeah, and uh, yeah, I think they're basically the the kind of things that I think are good uh, good self help techniques, really. I think. Yeah. 
Basically, this podcast. Listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, how um, can people get in touch with you, or you know, how can people go about in finding more about Mend, and you know, if they ever did need support from Mend, how would they go about doing that? We're on social media. We can you can follow us basically at Mend Community on Twitter. We're on Facebook. I mean, yeah, we've got a website, uh, uh, men.org.uk. Um, if you need help from the IRU. There's links on the men website to that as well, basically. Yeah. So you can contact us if you have had a problem with being a victim of hate crime or discrimination. So, yeah, we're, we're basically on social media and on the web. Yeah, find us very And easy. Uh, all of um, men details will also be available in the description box or wherever you're going to be listening uh, in, in from, inshallah. Um, so that wraps up uh, today, Dr. Shahzad. Khair for, for your time and your insight. I found it really, really great. It's been a really interesting uh, um, discussion. Uh, so on that note, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. khairan for listening to this amazing episode with Dr. Shahzad Amin. Please don't forget to leave us a review and let us know your comments and your thoughts about the episode. And if you would like to be a guest on a future podcast or would like to suggest someone, please email us at podcasts at institutionalminds.org.uk. Don't forget you can find us on all of our socials and we would love to hear from you, so please do get in touch. Until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.